Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Today on the show, I speak with Rabbi Mordecai Finley. To say Rabbi Finley is unique just might be the understatement of the year. Rabbis don't often grow up in Compton or join the Marines or hold a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. But Rabbi Finley is no ordinary human. He received his doctorate in religion and social ethics from the University of Southern California. And in 1993, Rabbi Finley and his wife Mirav co-founded the Orha Torah Synagogue in the Mar Vista neighborhood of Los Angeles. Beyond his work at this synagogue, Rabbi Finley has a counseling practice specializing in interpersonal relationships. He integrates insights into his practice from myriad schools and traditions, including Jewish mysticism, Stoicism, Buddhism, and from the work of Carl Jung. His fluency on the topics of wisdom, virtue, and the nature of consciousness are on full display here during our conversation. And I sense this is the first of many discussions with a rabbi as we try to define what constitutes the good life. So without further delay, I present to you, Rabbi Mordecai Finley. Okay, Rabbi Finley. Hey there. Great to be with you. It's great to be in your view. Thank you very much. Thank you. So I'm, I've been looking forward to this conversation quite a bit because uh, I spend an abnormal amount of time contemplating what consists or, or what the good life consists of. And, um, and I, I would call you a triple or a quadruple threat. Um, here we are in, in LA, so there's actors that sing and dance and act. Um, you are a intellectual, a philosopher, a religious leader. Um, you know, obviously, you're fluent in Old Testament scripture as a rabbi, but you really distinguish yourself in the breadth of your knowledge. You're an 
expert in Eastern philosophies like Buddhism and Hinduism and Taoism and also steeped in the Hellenistic philosophies and schools of thought, Stoicism and Epicureanism, Platonism. So very rare and uh, such a, a rare opportunity to get to speak to someone who has who is coming at this topic from so many interesting and, and different angles. So people just start very broadly, um, given that you do have such a wide background and, uh, you know, there has been Eastern concepts of moksha and nirvana and the Wu way of, of Taoism and Hellenistic notions of eudaimonia and ataraxia and aponia and Abrahamic traditions that offer all forms of eternal salvation and even biochemical understandings of happiness and the good life connected to neurotransmitters in the brain. Given that your range of knowledge spans so many schools of thought, I wonder if you have cohered around what it is like to live a good life. Thank you. It's an excellent basic question. And because I am a pulpit rabbi, Everything that I teach at some point has to drill down to the lived lives of people. So I, I try to make sure that whatever I'm going to teach, it has the widest pop, uh, possible audience uh, in the most meaningful way. So I'll start with the Greek term eudaimonia. EU means good. Daimon in Greek has the sense of spirit. So good spiritedness or well-being. Uh, the word in the Bible is osher, O-S-H-E-R, and both refer to a <clears throat> kind of spiritual contentedness that is not dependent on external conditions. So we hope that external conditions <clears throat> are kind to us. We can't rely on it. And therefore, one has to build up within oneself one's own path to good spiritedness or eudaimonia or osher. And the main inhibitor, aside from fortune, good fortune or lack thereof of the external world, is our own resistance to living a life of goodness. You know, I, I prefer the term life of goodness because the good life can oftentimes mean a Chevy, a barbecue, and a yacht, and a <laughs> picnic on the weekend. So I, I like to be yeah. careful and say a life of goodness. Yeah. So interesting. Is it so Stoic philosophy um, in specific focuses on what one can control and acknowledging what one cannot control. And in sure. fact, that notion actually spills over into, into some forms of Christianity, the mm -hmm. famous serenity prayer. And so are, is, is that some of, the, um, of what you're alluding to there, of being able to understand where... Um, where society, where the the tentacles of society or your environment per se, kind of where they are outside of what you can really have any oversight over. Uh, uh, my experience is most people live in a rather circumscribed environment, so their inner well being is determined by family, by work and the most local circumstances. So I've discovered, remember, we're taking as a spiritual leader of a congregation, uh, have an active counseling practice. Most people suffer because they don't have thriving interpersonal relationships, or they suffer because of the lack of skill to conduct an inner life that can avoid, for example, 
depression, despair, guilt, shame, fear, etc. So uh, I, I have, my doctorate is in social ethics. I have training in social theory. But as a practitioner, as a soul guide, I more focus on what you might call more of a micro universe than a macro universe. Hmm. Understood. So let's poke at that idea of suffering for a moment, because many of the definitions, I suppose, of human flourishing or well-being or a life of goodness um, seem to be concomitant in some manner with the notion of suffering. Yeah, the so, of human suffering. Yeah, I guess that would be my initial question for you. Is that the default condition of humanity or, or, or the inevitable condition of humanity is one of suffering? And, and how do you understand suffering? Well, we're going to assume that the external world is real. I think we have to take that. It, it might not be, but we'll take it as a premise that other people are real, that we love other people. And either they pass before we do or we pass before they do. So we'll start there that we're going to lose people and they're going to lose us. I think there's the randomness of life, accidents and so forth. There are forces beyond our control uh, going on in the world. I think of really unfortunate people living in parts of the world, no matter how hard they try. Uh, the forces of history are, are like bulldozers, just running people over. So I think that one can have good fortune and have good health and good relationships and good work, but eventually someone you love is going to pass away. Eventually, we're going to theoretically become ill and die. So there's some degree of suffering written in it inevitably. Now, from my life as a, as a clergyman, I see probably a skewed version of suffering because that's when people call me. So I see myself in some ways as an ER doctor. Uh, I, I don't have a, an objective view of human suffering. I have the personal view as a spiritual guide. Understood. And I, I suppose, you know, it's always important to delineate between suffering as it pertains to, uh, I suppose, chronic pain or, um, you know, um, <clears throat> kind of the absence of basic needs mm -hmm. uh, to be kind of, if you kind of can imagine well-being on a spectrum from absolute perfect n nutrition, community, movement, restoration, um, wisdom, all of the attributes of well-being on one side of the uh, equation and then all the way to over to the right, you can see sort of the absence of basic needs, chronic pain, danger, uh, discrimination, lack of opportunity, etc. That, you know, we are all living on a spectrum of, of well-being and suffering. And mm -hmm. there is a spectrum um, that is undeniably unchosen. But there is also a component of suffering that is really the phantom of one's own projection, if you will. And I wonder if you have found what the source of that particular kind of suffering is. And, and of course, many spiritual traditions have, can point to different um, sources of suffering. Um, but I, I wonder how you have 
begun to understand it in, in your daily life. Sure. The model of the spectrum. Here's one thing I've discovered. Uh, certain individuals have decided that suffering stops at the, uh, at the door, at the, the door of our external reality, and have cultivated well-being in the most adverse conditions. So what an outside person might say, how can you possibly have well-being with all this adversity? One answer is, because I've chosen well-being. That at some level, how one deals with the outside world is habitual. Uh, so that's, I think, one source of our suffering is, first of all, our genetics. I think some people just are more fortunate than others in their the, the genetic gift of predisposition well-being. Early childhood, obviously. Uh, everything since early childhood, we have all many different life stories, and many people's life stories cons uh, consist of considerable pain, of trauma, of heartache, disappointment, and other people are very fortunate. And what I teach is... Uh, the most important thing, distinction between well-being and suffering, is a personal decision. A person decides to cultivate well-being. Now, once you decide to cultivate well-being, then, of course, the question is, what does that mean? I call this the vision. So you've probably seen that my work contains, uh, one side of my work contains four elements. A clear vision of exactly what you want from your life as, in as much detail as possible in every part of your life. Number two, understanding the will to achieve the vision, which means it's more than a good idea you run up the flagpole. It's actually, there's a marshalling of the will. The third is the skill to achieve the vision, including, perhaps most importantly, the skill to overcome resistance. Because some authentic happiness, which means well-being produced by things more than mere gratification, come easy to some people. Some people are naturally artistic. Some people are naturally mu musical. Many other people find the pursuits that produce well-being to be profoundly difficult. And anything difficult requires sacrifice. So many people can imagine what a life of well-being would, would be like, but they don't have the vision, the will, and the skill to overcome resistance. So if I were just to look at the people whom I've counseled, one thing I've seen is, First of all, they haven't decided. They just haven't decided to be a wise person in their relationships at work, etc. Um, they don't have a clear enough vision. They haven't cultivated the will. And they don't know how to deal with resistance. But all of that requires a decision to move in that direction. Is there a clear, multifold path, uh, I suppose, for being able to articulate the clear vision? Is that a, uh, how do you guide people in that first step? That, that's a great question. So what I've discovered is, in, in, you know, I, I call my, my wisdom work conceptually, vision will skill, and constant reflection and evaluation. I call that the conceptual side. On the procedural side, which means how does a course of counseling usually go? Now, this is artificially broken down, but, but it works in general. Virtue, rationality, wisdom, and depth. So virtue is restraining 
First of all, speech and behavior that's harmful to others. Then beyond that, virtue is restraining inner life habits that are harmful to the self, self-loathing, self-criticism, etc. So we'll call that virtue. The next step is rationality, which is the capacity for precision in language. And it is very surprising for people to discover how much rationality and reasoning have to do with human well-being. So part of constructing a vision is precision in language. So there are many parts of the path that I teach where people who permit imprecision in, in language suffer more than they need to because they actually can't figure out who they are, what they want, and how to get there. They think in metaphors, they think in vague terms, they think in slogans. So on the path of virtue to rationality, then down to wisdom, the way that I teach wisdom is you have to have the capacity for precision and language to have the wisdom to work with the inner life. I mean, I can explain this much more, but that's why I teach the path of virtue, rationality, and wisdom as a process, because I don't think you can be a wise person if you don't have precision in language. And precision in language without virtue is useless if you constantly allow yourself to dysregulate with other people and dysregulate inside yourself. And is this a skill that one can acquire? Because I will say that generally we're just not trained to find and articulate words as vessels for these metaphysical concepts that can seem, you know, quite outside the direct experience that kind of an average person might have. Well, you, you've tapped into the depth of it, which is language mediates between the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. The unconscious mind is where you might say the activity of the soul until it's brought into consciousness. And the soul, in my mind, is that which connects us with the metaphysical world. So when I'm teaching precision and language, part of what I'm teaching is mediating conscious to the unconscious, to the soul, to the metaphysical realm. Hmm. Uh, so I have found, just, just as you, you are inferring, that many people just don't know how to think clearly about what they want in life. And that's where my, you know, in my counseling, in my classes, we spend considerable time on precision in language and precision of vision. If a person says, well, I just want to be a good parent. I say, that's a nice sentiment. What exactly, what exactly does good parenting require? Many people stop right there. They've never philosophized on parenting. And now they might have a few more things to say, often slogans that they've heard from somewhere. You know, give them roots and wings. I say, okay, that's a metaphor. What exactly does that mean? And many people are satisfied with metaphors and slogans. Of course, what I try to do is get it down specifically, not only, for example, the vocation of parenting, but which child? Because children are not one size fits all. So who's this child? How do you understand the soul of your child? How do you understand the inner life of your child and what your child, each child, if you have more than one child, for example, requires in this thing called parenting. So even just engaging in this conversation, it's profoundly revelatory to people just by using precise language. Yeah, interesting. I mean, to me, 
that resonates of a kind of meditation on forms to some degree or uh, this idea that um, that there could be a form of what it is like to be a perfect parent. And now I'm kind of like alluding to kind of Platonism to some degree. And of course, in that, that form then becomes refracted, you know, a thousand times through various lenses between kind of the, the spiritual realm or the infinite realm and the quotidian human realm. <laughs> and we scrap away, if we're engaged in this work, uh, you know, through Socratic dialogue and through contemplation and inventory to slowly uh, accrue the both the understanding and the vocabulary that can get us closer to that form. Is that a fair yeah, understanding? That's, that's very well put. Uh, so remember, when we talk about forms and so forth, we're talking about metaphors of metaph metaphysical reality. And I judge the usage of a metaphor according to its efficacy, which means if we use the metaphor of metaphysical forms, does that produce wisdom? Does that produce goodness? And I, I find that it does. So let's say there is something called uh, the good that might be broken down into love. Eros and agape, that's brought down into parenting. I, let's say I love my child, if we want to stay with that. What does it mean to love another human being well? What does it mean to love a child well? What does it mean to love this child well? So that's now we're going down through the thousand refractions, as you said. And that's where applied wisdom comes in. So, yeah, well, let's excavate the notion of love for a moment. Um, because... You know, as it becomes distilled down into the world of the 10,000 things here, you know, there's all these different forms of love. There's conditional love, like, you know, I'll love you if, <laughs> or, um, you know, uh, transactional love, which is kind of I love you and, and here's your list of duties. <laughs> um, and, and then, but of course, what we're actually looking for is, you know, this capital L love, uh, um, which feels less like an ephemeral emotion arising and subsiding in consciousness moment to moment, but really a state of being. And I wonder, through your contemplation, what love has become to symbolize or, or mean for you? Well, I, I start with the Bible. And when the Bible commands something, it doesn't seem to apply that it's an ephemeral emotion. So when the Bible says, you shall love, you shall love your rea, whatever that means, we'll say neighbor. That doesn't mean it depends on a feeling or an emotion. It's a commandment. When it says, love Adonai your God with all your heart, soul, and might, that's not a feeling. It's a commandment. So then one has to ask oneself, well, if this is a commandment that is not, not entirely rooted in my subjective feelings one day to the next, but some kind of duty. So I would say the core of this kind of love is uh, to promote the well-being of the other. Mm. I think that's the core of it. Now, yes. so it being of service, 
to the other. So if I say, I love my wife, I love my children, at some point, I am in the service of their souls. Now that gets very complex because I'm assuming I might know what they need and I might not know what they need. So now we're into the, into the question of how do I get to know the, uh, not just the needs, but the authentic needs of another person. And through that, try to reduce the prism of what I think they need. You mentioned earlier projection. So this is very complex, but here's the interesting thing, Jeff. You, one can do it when one starts the rational deliberation. What is love that actually produces great fruit? It's, it's worthwhile to philosophize, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, it's interesting that you mention need, uh, because I think a lot of, at least, love in terms of human relationship is uh, often um, involves the thrusting of the requirements of one's ego onto someone else as if they are there to fulfill your needs. And uh, that's not a, often a profitable project. No, and that. that can go very poorly. So let's yeah, think of it a little yeah. bit differently. Let's say, thinking about being a parent, a child arrives into your life. Now, I think we have a covenantal duty to love the child. And my child has needs. And... I need to figure out what that is, how I provide them, because this child has, you know, it, it, normally speaking, they have one chance to have a good dad. You know, they're good biological dad. And I'm it. It starts and stops right here. So, yes. And then as the child gets over, I might reveal some of my needs. Now, these are not ego-driven needs. These are authentic needs. You know, I need to be heard. I need to be understood. I need to be valued. I need to be treated respectfully. So uh, I think some needs are what we call authentic needs that people in a covenantal relationship, friends and family, I think they, they are, that's part of, that's actually definitional of a relationship. See, if I have no covenantal relationship with another person, you know, our, you know, confronting each other with our needs is purely a transaction. But the minute there's something called friendship, family, something that, that, uh, brings up the idea of covenant. That actually means that we have authentic needs of each other. Because if, if I'm in covenantal relationship, the person says, look, you know, I love you, you love me, but I don't need anything from you. I would say, uh, I actually think you're supposed to need things from me if, you, if we have covenantal love. Yeah, that's interesting because one of the reflections I've had on love is that if I am not requiring any, my love partner in any way to satisfy my needs, if I can satisfy myself, if I, through much of the work that you discuss, if I myself become whole, then in a kind of Maslowian way, I have satisfied all my needs. And love is transmuted from something taken to something given. It just becomes in a very effusive state of being. And, and so I've started to think about this capital L love as an eschewing of one's personal needs. Now, yeah. it's actually very interesting what you have brought up because you brought up a different shade uh, on that, that there, are, there actually are mutual needs 
inside of a, a covenant, which is a honestly a beautiful yep. word. So when you think about a covenant, you need another. And um, I mean, just think about the covenant of love. I need, I need a sounding board. I need someone to listen carefully. I need a hug. I need someone to say, hey, I'm here, I'm here for you. I'm your partner. I got your back. So if I were to say I'm self-sufficient, then I'm not qualified for covenant. Because what part of what covenant is, we'll be vulnerable with each other. We'll be needy with each other. And we will be happy as much as we can to meet authentic needs. Now, not inauthentic needs. Meaning, for example, I need you to make me happy. At some level, I am responsible for my own happiness. But in terms of covenantal love, I can say, my life is such and such that I act, I'd like something from you. you know, so, for example, uh, I like to be praised. So when I do something good, it's nice if my, you know, people around me say, hey, I was really good. I like it. it. Makes me feel good. And so people say, hey, you need anything? I said, yeah, I would like a little dose of admiration. Well, you did a really good job on uh, Jeff uh, Jeff's podcast. Thank you. Appreciate that. You know, it's not, it's not a terrible thing. See, I've taught people, be vulnerable with your needs. I need a hug. Uh, I need regard. I need a donut, right? <laughs> I, need you to, I, I, need you to, I need you to go with me to Costco. So I think those are, those are creaturely needs, and that's part of the stuff of relationships. So it's, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's love in relationality, not love in self-sufficiency. Yeah, I know you also have uh, a myriad acronyms, and, and you have one around need. Mm -hmm. um, can you break that sure. down a bit? Yeah. yeah. So this is my meditation on anger. When people are angry, it's almost always because of, because of a frustrated need. Not always, but in general, either of another person, of the world, you know, of the other political party, of God. We get frustrated because our needs aren't met. So I say, look at your need, and then I break it down. Uh, what is my need of this other? What is my expectation? What's my entitlement? What's my demand? Now, what this helps you do is think about a need with greater precision. The next thing is, is my need moral? Which means, is it so authentic and ontologically real that they have a duty to meet it. So here's one thing where I think people live with immoral needs is the need for other people to agree with them. Yeah. See, I don't think that's a moral need. I think if I'm engaging conversation with someone that I'm close to, I think we have a, a need to be listened to. But if I need other people to agree with me, it's as if I'm, I'm taking over their mind. So when someone says, well, I need so-and-so to agree with me, I said, I don't think that's an authentic need. Then, then my question is, is my need moral? Is my need rational? So when a person says, I need my teenager not to be secretive, not to be lazy, to get all their homework done and always be respectful, I say, then you don't know what the word teenager means. Okay? Because <laughs> I have three. rationally speaking, that's what an adolescent is. So let's just define teenager. They, oh, okay. So now we're now we have rational needs. 
So are my needs moral, rational? And then in a given moment, is my need useful? Which means depending on the situation that I'm in, is this the most useful time to announce that need? Now, if it meets all of the requirements, typically when going through this exercise, one calms down. It's a fascinating thing because one's moved the pointer of consciousness from, let's say, the limbic system right brain to the left brain, which is, what exactly is my need? Not what did yes. they do, how bad are they, but rather, what exactly is my need? And then just ask for it in the most precise, most kind way possible, and then see what they do next. Yeah, so this points to perhaps one of the the greatest challenges facing humanity in any moment, but particularly this moment, which is the inability to find and cultivate, you know, the space between stimulus and response. Um, and obviously, there's a lot of stoic teachings around this that we, uh, we tend not to that our, our emotional responses to stimuli or events are often anchored in our judgments of them instead of the event itself. Mm-hmm. And Precisely. the ability to cultivate that space, as Frankel famously spoke of, between stimulus and response there is is the growth and the freedom. But I suppose from a praxis perspective, how do you erect what you call the wall of virtue if if, if the instinct is so ingrained to have a, a, a amygdala hijack at any yeah, moment? Yeah, sure. That, that's a great way to put it. Well, first of all, it's, it's more of a habit than an instinct. Mm. And the reason yeah, I say yeah. this is the instinct for survival is greater than the instinct to talk. Now, I discovered this, as I've often spoken, when I was in Marine Corps boot camp. It didn't matter what the stimulus was. I will not speak until I am allowed to speak, because the consequences of speaking when you're not permitted to speak were enormous and dreadful. So I know that people cannot talk. So outrageous things were done. Horrible things were done. I didn't say anything because we weren't allowed to talk. So one thing I've realized is, with the wall of virtue is, first, don't talk. Take a breath. And then have a script. Now, scripts are written in wisdom, but prepared for when you're not wise. I want to give you a tiny example. So I have these wisdom classes that I teach, and I have a new student. Um, a mother with a 29-year-old daughter, and they're arguing all the time. I say, what kinds of things? She says, silly things. You know, there's nothing, like every day is something new. I said, when your daughter comes at you angry, what do you tell her? Well, you have to calm down. Well, actually, she doesn't have to because the next thing she does is continue the anger. Well, what do I say? Well, you can say, take a breath and say, this is not working for me right now, all this anger. So I'm going to take a step back, and I'll get back to you in half an hour. Hmm. The mom comes on the next week. She says, oh, my God, my relationship with my daughter has changed 180 degrees. Because just as you said, Jeff, there's a pause between stimulus and response. 
take a breath. Don't talk. Take a breath. Go to script. Calm down. Come back later. So it can be done, but people have to train. This is one of the things I emphasize the most. You probably know this, read anything that I've, the meager things that I have written is, it takes daily training. You can't decide to have a wall of virtue. You have to train in the wall of virtue. It's funny. I, I know that you're a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, and uh, yes. I don't know, but I'm, I'm very friendly with um, Henner Gracie oh, wow, and, here, and Huron, and we actually did a Brazilian jiu-jitsu uh, course on our platform. Wonderful. And um, so I'm always drawing metaphors, as I'm sure you are, even more yes. than I am, between <laughs> the, the BJJ practice and some of these ideas. Yes. And, and central, yeah, and central to be to BJJ is this notion of de-escalation, and oftentimes it's about managing distance. So if you think about when can a person really, really hurt you the most physically, it's when they're just right at the distance from you where they can put all of their weight into a punch or a blow and just knock you right on the nose, right? So in BJJ, there's two different ways to manage the distance. Well, there's many ways right. to manage the distance, no, but, but there's, there's two, two primary you're, ways. You're right on track. <laughs> and one way is to do what you just said. I'm out of here. Uh, I'm, I'm managing the distance. I'm getting away from that punch. So you're just punching the air. You right. can't get me. And then the other way, of course, is to go in. Correct. And then, you know, all the, you're, you're, you're punching with your forearms and you're Correct. not really able to cause too much damage. And, you know, I've really tried to assiduously apply that to my own life. And we all get into these situations where, you know, someone aggravates us in some particular way. And my, uh, my now, my trained behavior is I either do what you said. I say, hey, this isn't working for me. I'll, I'll call you tomorrow or I need to take a walk and uh, I need to think about this. And I generally move again out of my uh, amygdala and into my prefrontal cortex and try to apply rationality and reason to the equation, et cetera. Or I come in real tight and it's hard to hate, it's hard to hate up close, right? Oh, <laughs> and, uh, and I say, you know, okay, I, I totally get it and I love you and I understand this is where you are right now. And I find that either of those, uh, of course, every situation is different, but both of those tend to have a de-escalatory result. Um, so that is my... Uh, Very well put. So, uh, yes, the beginning of BJJ as self-defense, not as the sport or street fighting technique, but as self-defense, is de-escalation. So in my school, we learn prayer hands, which is you put your hands in a prayer position, you say, it's okay. Because prayer hands can quickly go to defensive hands. They can quickly go to block. But the posture is prayer. The posture is, okay, let's all calm down here. Let's calm down. So one thing in any tough moment, somebody has to be the, the, the force of de-escalation. Go to your lower register of voice. If somebody's being outrageous, take a step back. 
Um, if you lower the register of voice and you say, I'd love to hear what you have to say. I, I want to hear it all. That's your, in a sense, taking a step in. Now, you might want to take, not want to take a step in because they might feel crowded, but you're, you're talking about uh, emotionally taking a step in. Right. So, yes, sometimes if a person is completely dysregulated, take a step out. If you can calm them down and de-escalate, a great thing to say is, I'd like to hear everything on your mind if you could just keep it at a level where I can hear it. Um, yeah, and the other thing about BJJ is, um, is the amount of training to do something simple. I don't know if uh, they talk, those are two brilliant guys. I love, I love their material. But for example, how to move your hips. It takes probably a good three years hmm. to learn how to move your hips. And, you know, when I watch the new white belts, they're trying to do the hip movement. And I realize it's just going to take a while. And then you realize how many things in BJJ require this thing called moving the hips correctly. So that's why I say the wall of virtue. The wall of virtue is like moving your hips. It is the foundation of everything to come. If you can't move your hips well, you will never progress in BJJ. Hmm. So it's the same thing with the virtue, rationality, wisdom, and depth. If you can't regulate yourself enough to say, I'm not going to say what's on my mind. I want to take a breath. I'm going to say something smart. And then I'm going to create some space. Let them fill up the space. That's what I call the basic move of virtue. Yes. And I suppose there is a component of being able to witness the anger as an emotion arising in consciousness um, that you did not necessarily put there. Mm -hmm. It is simply appearing as a sensation. In the other but person, it does, in myself or the other? Well, in yourself. In myself, and yes. That, it's, uh, it's, it, 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 it arises on its own accord. I don't consciously bring it up usually. Correct. And, but the cultivation of this ability to witness anger arise and not either fixate, at, fixate on it or identify with it, mm -hmm. this requires what I believe you call the observer's mind. Yeah, the observer mind, correct. So the first thing, you train yourself to know when anger has intruded into the field of consciousness, and then don't talk. Breathe. Use a script. And then when you have a second, you can disidentify from the field of consciousness and observe the anger and realize it arises involuntarily but what is voluntary is expressing it in duration. I can choose not to express it, and I can choose to reduce the duration. So depending on how our personalities are constructed, things arise involuntarily from the field of, into the field of consciousness. But we can will expression and duration. Yeah, and this is the kind of very interesting debate around the the scope or lack thereof of free will. But I, I think it also points to a discussion that we might have about the nature of the ego, uh, because it is often the identification with these emotions or sensations or thoughts or generally phenomena that are 
ephemeral, uh, ephemerally in, arising in this transitory fashion um, that anchors the ego and 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 this identification with these things can be the cause of a lot of suffering. So I, I wonder if you could spend a little time kind of dissecting how you understand the ego mm -hmm. and, sure. and how we eschew it. Now, remember, my approach is almost entirely pragmatic. So I don't really have theories about things. I have practice from which I might derive a theory. So I don't use the word ego in a general way. I because I break down the inner life to number one, the uh, automatic field of consciousness. I call this the A state. We're we're automatically aware, such as you and I are aware of each other, aware of each other right now. We're attuned to each other. That's evident. We're accountable for what we, what we do and say, uh, and we're adaptive. That's kind of the nature of a conversation. Right? Neither you nor I are reading from a script. We're adapting to each other. So that's a really good A state. Then what happens is what I call an ego state can get triggered and intrude into the field of consciousness. So it actually might be narcissism, which is sometimes called ego. It might be the desire to control, but it might be guilt. It might be shame. It might be fear. It might be ambivalence. So I don't use the word ego because I think we mean so many different things by the word ego. I use ego state. So when you say, for example, uh, I'm projecting something into the world, I would just, if a person said to me, hey, Rabbi Finley, I have trouble with my ego, I project things onto the world, I would have a lot of questions as to what exactly that meant, what exactly the challenge is, what exactly the question is, because for me, that's a, a bit too metaphoric. So I find I help people by saying, can you tell me exactly what the problem is, exactly what the challenge is, exactly what you're facing? Got it. Um, I mean, I think ego often gets conflated with narcissism or selfishness. Correct. But I do think that there is a broader um, understanding of the notion uh, of of the symbol that you have for yourself, um, kind of the way that we use the word tree uh, uh, semi, uh, as a symbol, kind of in semiotics or whatever, for an organism with leaves. <laughs> and this symbol starts to um, accrue a certain kind of meaning that it can be very detrimental in many times. It can start to mean, well, I am what I have, or I am what I do, or I am what people think of me, and we be can become kind of very, very girded. To our identities can become very, very girded in those ideas, which uh, I think can can lead to a lot of unhappiness. Yeah, that's that's very clear. You've articulated it beautifully. So this is more of a spiritual quest, and I love it when people can get to this point where they're regulated, their ego states are not dominating them, they can bring some degree of order to their inner life. Now we're able to get to the deeper question, which is what Roberto Saggioli and others would call the authentic self. And this would be the self prior to all these identifications. And that's something of a mystical experience, where one releases all of the uh, garments and all the embodiments 
and moves into something that I call almost at the interface between us and the divine. You're not yeah. yet swallowed up into the, into the mind of God, but you're not completely back into what we'll call the operating system of the self. Yeah, and I, I suppose, well, in Buddhism, this notion of samadhi, which is uh, synonymous, I suppose, with integrated consciousness, where there really is no self, there is no distinction between what it is like to be you and experience as it arises around you. In fact, those things become completely integrated. And there seems to be a conciliant experience in that emerge out of other faiths. My um, layman's uh, theory is that that's likely what Jesus had. Jesus had a um, what the Buddha might call an awakening, a kind of revelation of integrated consciousness or some kind of deep, profound, epiphanous understanding of the of mutual interdependence, and he. Now, this is a fairly far-fetched theory, but when I think of the Son of God, I'm thinking of that root S-O-N as as sound or frequency or vibration, and that who knows how this thing got translated, and you know, millennia later. But my understanding of Jesus is a frequency that he was saying that I am the essence of God. I am this frequency of God because I've had this epiphanous experience in which there is no separation between what it is like to be me and the totality of the experience of the universe. Um, But this is very hard uh, to attain. Well, A, it's very clear the way you've spoken it. And I think just the Hebrew Aramaic that Jesus probably spoke, the word ben uh, or bar, when understood metaphorically, we are the issue of God. We have been emanated from the divine. This is a metaphoric idea of the son-daughter, as it were. And so if one can, as it were, ascend into that moment, and for me, because of my studies of Kabbalah, I, I understand this mostly from Kabbalistic meditation, where one ascends into the place of the, where the human consciousness and divine consciousness meet in what's called the emanation of the infinite. And you lose sense of self. And as one loses sense of self, one becomes a vessel for the divine. And then when you re-enter the lower emanations, you bring that with you. And life descending from the infinite feels very different from life that has never touched the infinite. I heard you talk about, I heard you utter this phrase that was so perfect that it almost made me jealous. (laughs) (laughs) You said something about the human condition being the shattered mind of God. Mm -hmm. This is straight out of Kabbalah. So, yeah, can you break down Kabbalah a little bit? Because I, I think that this is a, um, 
this is a topic that you know has a lot of mass confusion just in the yeah, general there's a lot of mass confusion. modern public. <laughs> I well, mean, uh, uh, from the, bracelets the, and the, everything the, else. The, yeah. yeah. You know, I've ever, ever since, you know, I've been on a few podcasts and I get emails from around the world. People say, I want to study Kabbalah. How do I get started? I say, read an article on, neo, on Neoplatonism, especially, you don't have to read Plotinus, but read about Plotinus, you know, the Enneads, and read about Gnosticism. Just an article, 10-page article. So Kabbalah is an in, is a intersection of Jewish Neoplatonism and Jewish Gnosticism. They exist in Islam, they exist in Christianity. So here's what it more or less means. There's an upper realm, using a vertical metaphor, of the divine. So this is platonic, the veiled reality. So you move up through a veiled reality, the divine light moves down through a veiled reality. That's the neoplatonic side. On the Gnostic side, there's a rupture that the divine light can't get through, that we're blocked off from the upper realm. That's the more Gnostic, we're trapped in a lower reality. If you put the two together, the veils themselves are shattered. There are veils. We're not cut off. It's an intermediate position. So these veils, these emanations, exist in the mind of God. So the Kabbalah calls it shivirat hakelim, the breaking of the vessels, or the shattering of the inner life of God, or the shattering of the mind of God. Now, if we take this seriously, what does it mean to be created in the divine image? Each human being carries with them their own configuration of the divine breakage. So from a Kabbalistic perspective, if you don't understand your breakage, you won't know what to do with your life. There's nothing wrong with you when you discover your divine breakage. In fact, you've discovered your life purpose. So people sometimes say to me, Rabbi Finley, what's wrong with me? And I say, there's nothing wrong with you. You've discovered, you discovered what you're supposed to be doing with your life. Mm, yeah. So from a Kabbalistic perspective, we're supposed to repair our own breakage. It's called a, a tikkun hanefis, the repair of the soul. From a Kabbalistic perspective, as we repair our own breakage, we are repairing the divine and typically be, be, be bringing repair to other people along the way. So this is the work of, it's called tikkun which is rectification or repair. Hmm. It's not an original yeah. idea with me. I'm just being a, I'm being a good teacher of Kabbalah. Yeah, a very good teacher. Um, I suppose it's resonant of the allegory of the cave a, a, a bit um, in terms of how we are only able to see the shadow of forms unless we are able to unshackle ourselves yes that's something of a gnostic myth that we're trapped in the mm -hmm. cave that that really is a classic gnostic myth being trapped in the cave all you see are images which is the reflection of unreal things this is the make the movie the matrix yeah so when you think of kabbalah the beautiful thing about kabbalah by the way it, it is an it is an intersection of neoplatonism and Gnosticism. So it doesn't default to uh, the evil is just the absence of the good. It's a little more serious than that. On the other hand, we're not trapped in a cave. 
So the Kabbalah takes both evil and human potential seriously. Yeah. Alan Watts, the British philosopher, has a kind of beautiful metaphor around this notion of brokenness. And he he puts it this way. He says, the opposite of remember is not forget. It's actually dismembered. Mm-hmm. Nice. And we are, we are here in this world dismembered. We are, in essence, chopped up. And part of the spiritual path is this remembering. It is putting ourselves back together. Um, in well, that's, a, that's a perfect Kabbalistic metaphor. It might only yeah. work in the English language, but that's okay. Uh, yeah, right. But does it articulate well the, the world expressed in Kabbalistic Hebrew and Aramaic? Absolutely. That's a beautiful English language articulation of the breakage and the repair. So you talk a lot about duty and uh, commandment, I think, mitzvot. Uh, yeah, mitzvot that, is the plural, mitzvah is the singular. Got it. And I think there's a general understanding of mitzvah being a good deed, but it, it yeah, also seems... That seems to be kind of a, a modern uh, misunderstanding. Yeah, it's a, it's a terrible mistranslation, unfortunately. And as I understand it, you know, God passed down a series of commandments to Moses <laughs> and subsequently to to Noah. Um, and but then there's a mitz, there's a there's a broader set of commandments that are incumbent upon one to live a, a virtuous life. But can you talk yeah. a little bit more about duty? And I, I guess it's, uh, there, there is something very uncomfortable, I think, that many people have around being committed to something that it mm-hmm. feels like uh, a sacrifice, but that it actually, when one does commit to it, commitment seems to birth a lot of benefits and liberation so absolutely maybe pull well, listen, that in, a, in a post-religious society meaning where religion you know can be put at the margins of of our of uh, secularity um commandment has a sense of intruding on our liberty hmm. yeah so people are uncomfortable with commandment so I, I should, let's just put that aside um See, the question is, uh, by the way, in the rabbinic tradition, there are the commandments that God gave to Noah, the seven commandments of Noah. For example, don't murder, don't steal, uh, create courts of law, etc. That's a comment upon every human being from the Talmud's perspective. And then you go down to biblical commandments, rabbinic commandments. I'm putting all the ritual ones aside for the moment and asking us, do we have duties toward other human beings? So this is something in the, you know, in, vir- in virtue ethics and in, in Kant's ethics, do I have the duty of regard of another human being? Do I have a duty not to harm another human being? Do I have a duty to benefit another human being when possible, reasonably speaking? So, uh, so I would say yes, but here's for me the brilliance of the idea. Remember, the, the idea of a mitzvah is a concept. It works for some people, doesn't work for others. 
But the idea of mitzvah is it doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what your emotions are. So my wife and I are going to light candles for Shabbat in a few hours. It doesn't matter how we feel. But when we light our Friday night candles, that changes our home. So we have the duty of keeping the Sabbath. It doesn't say, if you feel like it, keep the Sabbath. But in performing the duty, there's a, a shift in consciousness. Uh, there's a, f- a famous little story in the, tal- in the uh, I think in the medieval tradition that I love, where there are t- many times where, where Jews were held as captives and, and, you know, and, and traded and so forth, and they would be in a prison. And uh, the, you know, the, the folktale goes that the, the, the prison guard, said, the warden says, you can keep one of your commandments. You want to do Passover, you want to do Yom Kippur, pick one, I'll let you do one. And so that's the rabbi, which commandment should I observe? The rabbi says, the next one. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> so when people say, what's the most important duty? I say, the next one. Yeah. Because in every moment, not literally, but in every moment, is pregnant with birthing something beautiful because we've done our duty. You've lived in accordance with something higher. You act in ways that don't matter. It doesn't matter how you feel because we're part of a metaphysical universe. We're part of a metaphysical nature. And then that gets, you know, I like your idea of the thousand refractions. That gets refracted down to this moment at this time, this situation, this person. I have a choice to respond to in an authentic way to this moment or evade. So I like the idea of mitzvah as duty to the metaphysical reality of the moment. Mm-hmm. So would you categorize the emanations of, um, what is it? Is it called the sefirot? Sefirot uh, is plural. Sefirot is one, sefirot is plural. Got it. As what one might call perennial universal truths. And I, I ask you this because, you know, there is a, I think, consistent debate around fundamental truths and relativistic concepts or morality. And I think we struggle between those two poles because universal truths often veer into the fundamentalist or the highly dogmatic um, that, you know, have tended to exclude different groups based on institutional religions, et cetera. Um, But relativistic morality seems to eschew the notion that there are are ideas that are better than others. <laughs> so, I, I, so I wonder where you land. Yeah, well, let, let's break that, that down. Uh, see, when I think of a person believing in an ultimate truth, I look, for example, at Marx's critical theory. He believed there was an ultimate truth that there are always oppressors and victims. Well, that's quasi-religious. So even in the secular world, there are universal truths that are not examined, not reasoned about, just assumed to be true. So I'm not going uh, to put this idea of universal truth on one group or another. I would just say it's the human condition. 
People believe in the universal truth. For example, I believe in the universal truth that there are better and worse answers to moral questions. It's axiomatic. You can't talk me out of it. There are better and worse answers to moral questions. So the questions might be relative to the culture. The answers might be relative to the culture. But every culture is held together by the idea that there are better and worse answers to moral questions. So the Italian legal system is different from the legal system of the UK or the United States. Okay. So yeah, it is relative to the country, but ideally is every system that can, that actually can be called a system interested in justice. Yeah. It's, there are different versions depending on the nation. Uh, there was a book written in the uh, 1700s called the spirit of law. I think it was by uh, Montesquieu. He tried to figure this out. Why it, does every country seek justice in a different way? And he tried, he tried to answer the question. So this complex because it is true that justice in many ways is relative to culture, but not the idea of justice. Meaning every culture that is so inclined will say there's something called the just, the right, and the true. And here's how we get at it. So if a person says there's nothing really called justice, there's nothing really called moral, it's just the aggregate of opinion of people at a given time. That's actually not morality. So moral relativism is actually not moral. It's just sociology. It's just history. It's a history of opinions. But morality means there are better and worse answers to moral questions. That's what that's what the that's the essence of the meaning of the word. Yeah. So let's take justice for a moment. If there is a platonic form of justice, how do you understand it? Yeah, and, so, and I don't mean the mechanism by which you try yeah. to understand it. I mean, I mean more like how do you understand yeah. so, justice? Uh, here here I, I go with the medieval tradition that I found very instructive, especially Thomas Aquinas, where you know he says there's something called human law or human justice, which applied court justice. Above that is the natural law, which means a, a law rooted in human nature. So what does it mean that, it, that people seek fairness, that people seek proportionality, et cetera? So that's called, I will call that the natural law. Then above that, we have the eternal law. So I think that's what we mean by, is there some, is there some platonic uh, realm, idea, or form that shapes my thinking when I say, is this right? Is just, is this fair? Now, the reason we can't fully define it is because it defines consciousness. You see, something that births consciousness, I don't think consciousness can fully behold because it's actually, in a way, producing consciousness. So all we can do is talk about it. We can use metaphors, we can use poetry, we can tell stories, but ultimately it's beyond precise human definition. And this bedevils people, but if you study any book on ethics, justice, etc., it comes down to the idea of root words in a language. When you get down to root words, right, just, fair, they always involve each other. Right, yeah. So that's not how we know we've gotten down to a root word. Now, in root words of value, I would say they begin to point out a metaphysical form. 
So a metaphysical form from our perspective is a constellation of values that have an affinity with each other, but the form itself defies precise definition. So there's no way you can define justice or fairness. We can point to a constellation of terms. We can try to apply it. We can make poems about it. We can tell stories about it. We can't completely define it to everybody's satisfaction. Yeah, one of the kind of uh, Socratic dialogues I suppose I'm having with myself uh, around the human need for fairness is it's a confusing conversation that I'm having with myself because I also subscribe to um, like Taoism, for example, which recognizes that there is a fundamental order to the universe, a logos, if you will, and that nature arises and exists in and of itself. Like it was never constructed per se. It just arises and everything within it is mutually interdependent. So, and that when we are living in accordance to the Tao, we are living in accordance to that nature that we are not going against the grain. There is this concept in Taoism called Wu Wei, which is a kind of non-action or, or action without intention, for example. So then I look at like situations, this is sort of an odd example, for um, but I'll just bring it up because maybe it grounds it in something specific. So you're familiar with Yellowstone Park, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. So in the early 1900s, there was a decimation of the population of wolves in Yellowstone Park. Uh, you know, human beings found them to be just egregious. Pred predatory. And, you know, yeah, predatory. Yeah. And, um, and so the wildlife agency basically gave people free reign to exterminate these wolves. And, you know, it took a 20 years and they were gone. And the absence of the wolves really changed the ecosystem of Yellowstone. The elk, for example, that used to live in the graded areas of, of the park started to come down and graze the prairie lands such that it, in about 20 years, all of the prairies and grasslands were completely desiccated. And it would be this kind of almost like a wasteland. And there were all sorts of human interventions to try to kind of figure this out. And, and finally, someone, uh, a scientist, um, after, you know, 20, 30 years, uh, prevailed upon people to reintroduce the wolves to Yellowstone Park. And lo and behold, you know, nature found its balance once again you know the coyotes and some of the elk went back up into the graded areas but many of the elk were killed yeah of course and that's how you get rid of elk <laughs> that's how you get rid of elk many of the elk were killed and all of a sudden the the flora started to come back and the willows were blooming and the and the beavers were using some of that additional flora then to build dams and that stopped the erosion of the rivers and brought in cold water pools and the fish came back and all of a sudden we saw kind of this 
biodiversity flourish once again. And as humans, we say, amazing, God, nature just has a way of finding this mutually interdependent balance and flourishing. But we never say, oh my God, what about the elk? You know, all of those elk yeah, there's even a, that a deeper die. Question. There's even a deeper question. Mm-hmm. Let's say the frame, flourishing biodiversity, that's a human construction. We don't know if it's better or worse. That's our judgment. The second thing is, aren't human, from this Taoist perspective, aren't we human beings part of nature? Absolutely. So if we're part of nature, and it's in our nature not to want to be eaten by wolves, is it in our nature to exterminate wolves? So it almost says that like, everything's of nature except human beings. So if we put everything in their nature, human beings are part of it. Now, we may not like what we see because it doesn't match some... I'm not saying it's wrong. I like flour, flourishing biodiversity. But we have to remember, those are human words. Yes, they are words that may be clunky, but they reflect a certain kind of eubiosis, I I guess I would say, that without our intervention would be naturally functioning in and of itself. It it might might be a, a plague or a disease that would kill all the wolves or all the elks. And then would we still want to introduce, reintroduce wolves if a plague killed them? <laughs> That's true. But I guess my point here is that humans' obsession with virtue and morality, you know, this is really what I'm trying to get my head around, because we, in our quest to eliminate suffering, for example, like we want to eliminate famine, we want to eliminate disease, we want to curtail war. But every time that we make these, and not every time, oftentimes when we make these efforts in the name of morality, what we end up doing is imposing a certain anthropocentric idea of what is right onto nature such that we desiccate our soil lands or our, our soil or our national forests, or our, yeah, our I, ecology. I really or, yeah. I, yeah, I understand your sentiment very much. So I don't agree with Taoism here. Mm-hmm. I believe there's something called the moral law. There's something called the natural moral law. So I wouldn't go with the flow of nature if the flow of nature meant rampant murder. I would say, ah, it's human nature. I would actually like to stop it. So am I interfering with human nature? Absolutely. Because human nature oftentimes includes violence, domination, and destruction. So I'm not going to say that's just human nature. Okay, now it's the same thing when one looks at, uh, for example, the Yellow River in China. Right, Millions of Chinese have been killed when you have these once-in-a-century floods. So the Chinese government has said, can we do things in such a way that when this once-in-a-century floods come in, a million human beings are killed? What is the water care? The water's on its way to the sea. We're just going to help it get there without killing a million human beings. So what I would say is that there are gradations of this. Human beings are characterized by lack of thoughtfulness, not understanding unintended consequences, 
But on the other hand, would I like the Chinese to manage the Yellow River in such a way that millions of people don't die? Absolutely. That would be preferable to me. So I think the, the question uh, is not that there's something called nature with which we should flow. We, I think we have to bring a value system. So, for example, the value system of biodiversity. Now, that's a value system I like. So when human beings killed all the wolves and affect the biodiversity, I would say, let's bring back some wolves. But remember, that is a human value system. I mean, I don't think the elks know anything about biodiversity. I don't think the wolves know about biodiversity. That's, a, that's what we humans think. And it is a good thing. So uh, I don't think we can escape the fact that we human beings live by value systems. What we can do is carefully examine our value systems and carefully examine uh, unattended consequences. Carefully examine when a value system ends up in destruction. So as a someone trained in social ethics, a lot of my training is in human values and what we do in service of our values. And I think what you, what you pointed to is a disaster. So what it means to me is we should be more careful and try to fix the things we break. But I do believe we should act according to a value system, just thoughtful value systems. Yeah. So I know that you put a lot of um, emphasis on rationality and, um, and you categorize it in an interesting way around uh, vocabulary and really becoming That's one aspect, uh, more, yes. more mindful with, with articulation and, and words. Um, but oftentimes rationality is, is anchored in enlightenment based principles, principles of reason and, um, application of science and its method. And so I wonder how you square your, um, your emphasis or your embracing of rationality with kind of Abrahamic traditions that are revelatory in nature? Well, let's think about the Bible. In the Hebrew Bible, there's a huge corpus of law, and law requires the rational applications of principles to cases. So the Bible assumes human rationality, that when it says don't murder, we have the law, and then we can look at a case. Is this self-defense? Is this accidental? Is this intentional? So all the law of the Bible, which means the revelation assumes human rationality. So there's no contradiction. Um, and I think in the rationality is in the service of what I'll say human values. Human values, I think, arise out of the soul. So rationality is not self-sufficient. But let's say, if in the realm of the soul I value human life, then I can rashly ask myself, how do I apply that value? For example, uh, medicine, hygiene, distribution of resources. Now, how do I distribute resources? That's actually a rational question. You know, how do I get resources from one place to the next? So I think all of our values, in my mind, which are rooted in the soul, need rationality for application. Yeah, then I guess I would ask, what is the utility of 
traditional Abrahamic religions at this juncture. If oh. if if religion has obviously been the providence of values, and science has been sort of the realm of fact, um, but given that you know that that there is scripture that seems to have a little problem with the problem or the project of slavery or you know obviously obviously condones you know public stonings of those with alternate sexual orientation and things like that right. um you know how do we square well, this well in, we in have to time? assume let's say you're assuming that our rational study of scripture shows scripture to be deficient so we are applying moral rationality to scripture now some traditions the more orthodox evangelical etc will try to explain away the moral deficiencies of scripture if you're not in the so-called orthodox or evangelical it's obvious that scripture can be deficient because it's it's born in a certain time and as our understanding of morality grows, just as our understanding of mathematics grows, meaning math has always been there, we just understand it better. Morality has always been there, we just understand it better. So when you look at the, the so-called liberal religions, I don't mean politically liberal, I mean as opposed to evangelical orthodox, there's a complete willingness to see that scripture, there are parts of scripture that are absolutely morally deficient and therefore use the rational lights of conscience to apply scripture. So then what's the utility, as you're saying? From my perspective, remember, I take a much more archetypal psychological approach towards scripture. So scripture for me is the main avenue toward depth. So when I study the, this, the, the narratives of Genesis, uh, they are profoundly, profoundly deep in reflecting core issues of the human condition. I'll give you one tiny example. The Torah portion for this week is Jacob and Esau. So we're told from last week's Torah portion that they're born out of order. So the human experience of disorder, I'm not supposed to be in this life. There's something out of order in my life. There's a secret that, that Rebecca knows, but the boys don't. And they suffer because of this secret. And then the question is, in, in trying to remedy the secret, of course, here's the unintended consequence. Esau is profoundly hurt by it, and Jacob has to leave town. Nobody saw that coming. So when you, for example, study this Torah portion, there's dislocation, there's exile, life out of order, family secrets, unintended harm. There are so many deep truths in this one little Torah portion. So for me, every Torah portion, you know, there are 54 as we go throughout, 52, 54 throughout the year. Every one of them is an opening into archetypal psychology in the human soul. So for me, the utility of scripture is we have a common literature, we have a common dream, we have a common world of reference, it's buttressed by the symbolic ritual world. So it's a it's a system of finding meaning. I'm not I'm not orthodox, I'm not dogmatic. I'm interested in human beings creating creating uh, communities of language and myth and symbol and metaphor. Now, this is a non-Orthodox, non-Evangelical person speaking. An Orthodox or Evangelical person who stumbled upon this podcast would be furious with me right now, which is fine, <laughs> right? Unless they don't want to hurt me. No, no. I mean, uh, and so 
there is a value from a here i suppose a heuristic perspective um and i mean i know that we i think we both follow sam harris a little bit um and you know he makes an argument for kind of an empirically based ethics or, yeah, or a, that goes nowhere but uh, i've read his book it, it's a non-starter it's a cul-de-sac but okay yeah so uh, and i'm not a proponent of, i mean there's some things that I f- about sam that i find quite intriguing and, and and other pieces that that i don't um but i am an empiricist on some level in terms of uh, the method of science is very protean it's very flexible and versatile it can continue to revise itself it continues to a- ask why and it 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 can um morph to different moments in culture and and society uh in a way that potentially fixed scripture cannot and so i am intrigued by this notion of you know is there a universal concept of eudaimonia of well-being of human flourishing of a life without uh pain without um suffering that we can actually measure and cohere around that such that the metrics that we use to you know measure society can be more illustrative of actually where people are mm-hmm. um but, but again you know this 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 may be a pipe dream given that well the likelihood that all humanity will agree on one vision is just absurd so sam harris might figure it out is he going to coerce other people to come along with his idea the the utility sam ends up reinventing utilitarianism and utilitarianism is notorious for having made no effect on society whatsoever they never fixed anything. Yeah, so this is a very interesting point. So the utilitarian concept of promoting the most amount of well-being for the most amount of people and minimizing suffering for the most amount of people. Well, uh, subjectively understood. The greatest good for the greatest number, and then the utilitarians themselves realized what a poor phrase that is because they didn't like the greatest number. They said the greatest good from the enlightened elite perspective, because we don't want these uh, these proletarians deciding what's good. So as you read the utilitarians, by the point you get to the end, they say, well, we don't really mean the greatest good for the greatest number. We mean the greatest good as we conceive the good. Okay, well, let's go to the Spock definition. The uh, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Um and I think, you know, one of the issues that that I have with utilitarianism is that it forsakes humanitarianism, um, that we, in this pursuit of trying to make the world as good as it possibly can be for the most possible people, we are, it becomes too easy to um, disregard the needs of the few. Yeah. So, um, so the, the we problem see, is we see this. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the slate of hand 
Look how quickly they go across the word good. The greatest good for the greatest number, right? The good of the many outweighs the good of the few. Would you just please, I'm saying to them, define the good. So what if most human beings think it would be good for me to have a slave? 51% of humanity says, if I had a slave, my life would be great. And we all vote. And 51% of the people vote, the greatest good is to have a slave. And there's a few people that say, well, that's morally outrageous. And then the big numbers say, who are you elites to tell us that we shouldn't own a slave? Because it's the greatest good for the greatest number, we had a vote. Mm -hmm. What would a utilitarian say to this? That's a problem. Yeah, it's a that's problem. It's a problem to the system. I mean, with utilitarianism, yeah, that's why I don't think utilitarianism really answers any question adequately. It's just, I think it's just a, it's a nice thought. It just goes nowhere. Yeah, I suppose there's a certain application of this debate on top of the current vaccine morass, but maybe we don't go there. Well, yeah, <laughs> I would really say this. It's a, it's a nice tool. What would be the greatest good for the greatest number of people? I'll define the good as not getting COVID. Okay, that seems like a good thing. And therefore, how do we get most people not to suffer from COVID? You see, on a, on a local practical question, it works. But the utilitarians, try, what, their what their goal was, was to supplant the natural law that there really is a moral order. So I'm not against utilitarianism for small questions, but it doesn't replace the moral law, which is what they were trying to do. Yeah. So is it possible to live a good life, a virtuous life in a bad world? Uh, well, we'll say a cracked world. Okay. Okay. And why do I say a cracked world? Because of the Liberty Bell. The Liberty Bell says, proclaim liberty throughout the land and to all the inhabitants thereof. But it's a broken bell. Does that mean we don't pro proclaim liberty? Or does that mean it's a broken system that has a good vision? And either we can walk away from the vision or we can say, let's repair the bell. Let's find a bell we can ring. There's a crack in everything. Of course, I'm quoting Leonard Cohen here, one of my, my dear friend and former congregant. He said, yeah. ring the bell that we can ring. There's a crack in everything. That's where the light comes in. So for me, that's the Liberty Bell. That's a good, that's a good metaphor for our country in my mind. Yeah. The arc of the moral universe has long been advanced towards justice. Yeah, and and it, it's cracked. It's broken. Okay, what do we do? Walk away or fix it? Well, this is a prescient debate right now because I do believe that there are there is a cadre of people that are dedicated to patching the leaky hull of liberal democracy and uh, and really believe that our institutions should work and we really want them and need them to work you know a free press government um, 
representative government of rights. Correct. Yeah. Institutions like science, um, mm -hmm. et cetera. Yeah. But there, there does seem to be a uh, growing movement that seems almost, you know, nihilistic in nature that, that, uh, you know, looks at liberal democracy and sees its, its errors uh, and its faults, but doesn't really seem to be offering much in its place. hundred percent. It's a somewhat adolescent nihilistic movement. Meaning they're not being accountable for, for t describing what next. You know, Leonard Cohen says at the end of one of his poems, oh, and by the way, you're not going to like what comes next after America. So if America means you know, a country, a liberal democracy with a regime of rights and a regulated free market as imperfect as it is, it's better than the next thing. So I'm, I'm committed to fixing an imperfect America, accepting all of our faults, repairing them as much as we can, and pass the work down to another generation. Amen. I, I, I am too. And I think part of that really takes place on an individual basis. Um, it seems like we just don't trust each other's intentions mm -hmm. anymore. And, uh, and I think this is part of the work that, that one can do that I think we've pointed at in uh, a number of ways across uh, our conversation. But, but I think of like an incendiary issue, perhaps one that, that couldn't be more fraught, like abortion. Mm -hmm. You know, and we don't have to excavate the whole totality of this issue. But there are folks on... Um, you know, the left that, that might say with indignance, like, how can you not respect, you know, the, the rights of a woman to the, her own body? And there are people on the right that would say, how can you not, with the same level of indignance, you know, where I would say, well, how can you not respect the, the life of an unborn child? And, you know, this debate doesn't have much profitable conclusion. <laughs> it's just like an invective. Well, not, not when people uh, ask rhetorical like questions and don't start with humility and respect. And what the common axiom is, which is, the sacredness of human life. The question is, yes. when does an embryo become human? At conception? Six months? Nine months? But we agree there's something called human life that's sacred. Now, so I'll just take a deep breath and, and acknowledge that. And then the question is, is it better for us to work this out with violence or with the ballot box? What's better for the future of our country? So I say the ballot box. I don't want to persuade anybody. I say, let's, and you know, it's, it's, there's a crack in everything. There's people that are offended by the cavalier way that people say a woman's right to choose. And we're talking about what some people say is a human being. Yeah. You actually don't have the right to choose to kill another human being. Others say it's not a fully qualified human being. So I think the way people talk about it is incendiary. Yeah, and they don't seem to recognize the almost the the moral grounding of the opposing position because right. almost both sides have an infallible morality to yeah. them, which is well, what makes it, the issue so you know particularly fraught. And you know, I think when you begin to acknowledge that both sides, if you will, um, are basing and anchoring 
their feelings and beliefs in something deeply moral, then you begin to ask different questions like, what would actually, what, what are the conditions in which a woman would actually choose to terminate an unborn potential life? Right. And you get into a much more complicated and nuanced conversation yes. about yeah, yeah. how those conditions are born. Yeah, you and I really agree on this. And this is one thing that my pulpit stands for, my synagogue stands for, every time I, I, met, uh, I have the chance to talk about it, is the deep importance of civility in human discussion, the premise of good faith with the other person, the desire to bring forth, I like your word, excavate, excavate moral axioms that seem to be operating, find out exactly where we differ, respectfully disagree, decide what we're going to do further, and then politely disengage. So when someone comes up to me with a challenge, well, what do you think about this? I say, are we going to talk or are you going to yell? And so they, they say, no, I want to talk. I say, well, here, here's what we do. We share our moral axioms as we understand them. We adduce facts as we understand them. We civilly engage and we each get to take turns and we end with a handshake or a hug. I say, can you do that? And some people say, I'd like to learn how. I said, okay. So that's what I teach. I, I, I teach civic respectful discourse hmm. because I think that's the future of our country. Absolutely. Um, I've often said that there's the only thing that's really standing in the way kind of between the society our hearts know is possible, you know, are conversations, you know, these kinds of thoughtful, respectful conversations. And if you can instantiate the way that you're doing these venues for public discourse, for real ideas marketplace, yeah, um, it is so, so valuable. Um, and, and obviously, we've seen a lot of erosion of, of real yeah. public discourse on social media, et cetera. Right. Yeah, it's, um, uh, it's rough out there. Yeah, that, and unfortunately, guess, we don't have good role models. We don't have good role models in politics because each side wants to persuade. We don't have good role models in the media because they want clicks and they want to, to, to um, kind of rouse the troops. And then you find very small places that say, let's engage in, in civic, respectful discourse. It's, it's a, there's almost no benefit in it except values and the future of our country. So I love what you're doing because from what I understand of you, you are creating that sacred space where people can have respectful conversations and deliberate on deep things. So I want to I thank you for advancing my work, um, even as you do your good work. Yeah, well... Likewise, and uh, I hope this is to be continued because yeah. my sense is, is there could be uh, you know many metaphysical and moral meanderings that we would we would enjoy, and uh, I think other people would too. Yeah, we haven't solved we haven't really solved any of them. We just got started. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully next time we can um, we'll do it in person. I think that always uh, breeds another level of connection. So I, I look forward to to that opportunity. I do too. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Rabbi Mordecai Finley. 
To keep abreast of his work, go to rabbifinley.com. Feel free to reach out to me directly anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com. And if so inclined, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible, including Jacob Laub, Kamali Martin, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fritz, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.